This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. They would say, okay, it's dry, and they would show us this kind of limp stigma that clearly wasn't dry. It was dry-ish, and it's critical that the stigmas are dry because when they go into the jar, if they are not dry enough, they will mold. Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I'm your co-host, Evan Henthorne, with the University of Wisconsin, Madison Division of Extension, serving as an agriculture educator in Adams County. And joining me as my co-host is Jerry Clark, agriculture educator from Chippewa County. And our guests today are Parker Shorey, founder of Lemon Fair Saffron Company. We have Jonathan, Arash, and Margaret, all joining us back again for our next segment of Saffron. So, who is excited? 2.0, here we go. Jerry, how are you doing? Doing well, Evan. Thanks for that introduction. Uh, it's cold enough, so it's great that we could, I think it's like 20 below tonight and a high of, I'm going to get above zero today here in mid-February. And I think uh, it'd be great to talk about flowers or something outside for a minute. <laughs> Absolutely. Cooped up. Yeah, I am ready for, I can tell you, I am ready for spring. I'm ready to get outside and enjoy warm things again. You bet. All right. Well, we got our guests here today, um, Arash and Margaret from the University of Vermont. And uh, Arash, I'm going to start with you. Um, so this uh, saffron, we kind of talked about some growing techniques last week, what it is, kind of general overview, but um, is there really a market for such an expensive spice? And maybe just give us another little background on, on what it is and, and where this market's at. Yeah, Th thanks again for having me in your program. Yeah, actually for answering your question, we have to look at the evidences that we have. The evidences showed we imported more than 71 tons of saffron in 2019. That means we are a consumer. 71 tons is talking about something between 10% to 20% of the global production of saffron. So we have a market somewhere in the United States. In other hand, I should say every saffron growers local or American saffron producers that I know, they could be able to sell their products. So when we have a look overall, we see like, yeah, there is market and the market is not still saturated for the growers. So we're able to see some uh, potential out there. And uh, I think that's where we're glad to have Parker with us uh, as a new guest today, working uh, as a grower and distributor. Uh, just tell us a little bit about your farm background, Parker, uh, your business, and uh, where, the, where you see the opportunity for Saffron. Yeah. First, thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I always, I'm from Vermont, and I always consider Wisconsin and Vermont as, as friends. We have the cheese connection, <laughs> for sure. Um, <clears throat> so I... Uh, I have a farming background, just, just growing up farming. My summer jobs were farming in different places, helping out 
And I got interested in saffron when Arash and Margaret published their first study. Um, and like a lot of people starting up, I, I, went, I loved the idea. And I went after it with a greenhouse and some raised beds and grew saffron in 2017 in Vermont. Um, so through that experience, I learned a few things. One is that I actually was more interested in the drying of saffron and the quality that could come out through the drying process. And I also felt like to expand, um, I needed to expand through partnerships with other small farms versus more acreage myself. So Lemon Fair Saffron Company was founded as a way to partner with these farms, um, sharing growing tips with them, and then purchasing saffron and, and marketing it in the market of New York City, um, which is where I'm based half my time. So bringing that that U.S. grown saffron to the markets of New York um, and trying to create a market with that. So that's, that's where we are. I'm, I, um, we're a few years in. I have a partner, Hannah, who's been amazing helping um, on Instagram, the website, um, and we're getting good traction. I'm happy to talk more about that. Parker's uh, website is beautiful, and the, it makes you want to eat the food that he is recommending. And it just, if, if you want something warm and to make you feel better, you need to go to his website. Well, listeners, to make it easier for you, we'll just give you the website. Lemon Fair, F-A-I-R, saffron.com. Lemonfairsaffron.com. That's all one word. Lemonfairsaffron.com. Awesome. So, Parker, you kind of touched on it, but you said you are you using a lot of social media? Did I hear Instagram and kind of can you just elaborate a little bit more on that and how you are making this reach to people and promoting your your product? Yeah, definitely. Um, first, I'd say Instagram is is perfect for saffron. It's obviously it's a visual, a very visual uh, tool. There's a lot of food and foodies already on it. The colors of saffron from the flower itself um, to the final dishes, it, it's really perfect for Instagram. Um, what we're doing is um, sort of regular posts, um, educating uh, people about all, all parts of the process from growing to recipes. Um, I will say we've noticed the recipes, the food is getting the most engagement, uh, as Margaret said. We have a saffron hot toddy that I think people like. We have a saffron sort of butter pasta sauce that people like. So that stuff is getting good engagement. So we're, we're posting, we're doing a little bit of advertising on Instagram. Um, and then um, we'll go through influencers. So people that have you know several thousand followers and our chefs will send them product and say, you make something and post about it. Awesome. Okay. So can you just back up one second and just kind of explain, like, how do you go about selecting growers that you want to work with? And, and can you explain that process? Yeah. I, so um, we really, we really love this idea of a partnership of farms and the selection process is, I, I, it's really just getting to know farms that often they'll come to us or Margaret will recommend them. Um, we'll share our partnership agreement, which is kind of like the criteria of what we look for in a farm and the methods um, of harvesting, drying, and caring for the saffron. Uh, and then we'll have a conversation about what they're, what they're looking to do um, uh, and how we can support them. 
we we're pretty we have three farms right now that we have multi-year agreements with um, and we're just always in touch with them around harvest season we'll come and work with them and buy their saffron so it, it kind of works well for farms because they don't have to think about packaging website legal customer care shipping we just buy we'll buy their saffron at the beginning of the season and we'll take care of that stuff so Jonathan, just to, uh, Jonathan's a farmer here in Wisconsin, and um, how is that, uh, have you connected with uh, with Parker's Lemon Fair Saffron? I know last uh, uh, podcast we had with you, uh, it sounded like you were selling everything locally. You had enough to kind of meet the, the local market here in Wisconsin or wherever you're getting it. But how do you see that market developing with someone like Parker, who's close to a you know major metro city like New York? Yeah, I, I had an opportunity to look at uh, Parker's website, and I'm just blown away at the quality, but also just the storytelling of it and be able to capture it. And it's something I would aspire that I could do locally here, just not quite there yet. Um, so I, I think it's just being able to tell the story of what saffron is, how it can be grown, and then really focusing on that local quality, because as a spice, it is one of the most adulterated, you know, uh, spices. And I think you know, having that connection with, with where it's grown, who it's grown by, there's this trust and this relationship built between the, the end customer, you know, the, the person, the chef, um, the person who just wants a nice quality meal with a unique spice and they can get down the road from them. So I, we, um, a couple of years ago, we registered a domain, Wisconsin Saffron. We had, you know, ambitions of wanting to just kind of help uh, connect other small growers uh, in Wisconsin because, growing um, a lot of saffron for us isn't, um, isn't an ultimate goal. We're limited in our space. Plus, I think it also hedges us against from uh, catastrophic disasters or any maybe insect or uh, bacteria or any kind of fungal thing that could happen or weather. So we wanna work with other growers in, in the future. Um, and, and currently we're selling exclusively through Camel Cooperative, which is a cooperative that my, my wife Mara and I and other military veteran family small businesses started in Northeast Wisconsin near the Appleton area. So we've just been exclusively selling to our customers through there. Um, but we, we wanna work with other farmer veterans um, through the Farmer Veteran Coalition. We have the Homegrown by Heroes label we can use to help promote that. And I think there's just a lot of opportunities, but we wanted to get really good at trying to grow and make sure that we can replicate it from year to year and season to season. And that's where the Saffron Net and the work that Arash and, and Margaret and the team is doing in Vermont has been incredibly helpful. So, and then also work like Parker's doing and other growers, it's just helping us all elevate our standards, but also, you know, ambition to do more. So I'm excited about the future. Great. No, I really appreciate that, that network that you've developed through that co-op and having these connections. And, and Margaret, from a from a national standpoint, or North, I guess, North American standpoint, as this is probably grown in Canada. I can't recall if we covered that a little bit last time, but um, it sounds like there's an opportunity here based on what Arash said that we import 17 tons of this stuff and there's a market that obviously we have untapped. So what's the potential out there for you know small farms to really get into this? Uh, I think the potential is awesome, really. Um, and it's something that's being developed slowly it, saffron is such a new concept uh, for a lot of people that um, 
first thing is just to introduce uh, what the crop is and what's involved with growing it. It's not for everybody. There's some people that started growing it in 2017 and they decided, eh, they didn't, their back wasn't up to bending over to pick the flowers or whatever, or it was too fiddly. Um, so, but then there are other ones that started small and they've expanded to a quarter of an acre or more. So um, it really varies from individual to individual. Uh, and every year, every, every week, we get multiple calls from people around the US who are interested in, in trying it out. <clears throat> and, and Margaret and Arash, again, for, for listeners, they're from uh, University of Vermont, but are there other universities looking at saffron right now? Are you, are you guys the leaders and kind of cutting the edge here? And that's why our podcast is called The Cutting Edge. We try to find guests that are doing unique things and moving forward. Um, there definitely are at least, there's at least one other university and that's the University of Rhode Island. I think there are a couple of other universities that are interested in getting into it or maybe are just getting started, but we haven't, they haven't necessarily reached out to us, some of them, but we have worked closely with the University of Rhode Island in the past. This, this is really a new uh, crop and it's taken a while for the USDA, which is a primary funding source for, for grants. They, it's taken a while for them to embrace the concept and <clears throat> It's still a little bit too exotic for them in general. And I think that's why they don't collect data on uh, saffron production in the United States. Not yet. Uh, I think as the industry increases, um, it will become a crop worth reckoning with, but it's not quite there yet. When we are talking about other universities are working on saffron, it's like, it's not just about uh, crop production. I know, for example, Howard University in DC, Howard University, they are working on assessing the effect of saffron or saffron extract on colon cancer or anti-carcinogenic effect of saffron. It because saffron has pharmaceutical effects. I'm pretty sure that lots of researchers, they are working on that aspect. And I believe the first paper has been published in United States many, many years ago. I'm talking about 150 years ago about uh, pharmaceutical effect of saffron on some of the disease like anti-depression thing and you know, anti-carcinogenic effect. I cannot remember the name and the exact year that, uh, that paper published, but I will try to find it and publish it uh, and put it in our website very soon. Um, generally speaking, my understanding is that most of the saffron that is uh, imported into the United States is used for culinary purposes. Um, but whereas I think overseas, um, the use of saffron medicinally is much more widespread. And there needs to be more research done on um, the quantitative capacity of saffron to address some of these um, medicinal issues. And one of the things that is exciting to me about what Parker has done is when he comes up with his agreement, he has specific guidelines for how 
the saffron is prepared for drying. So the saffron stigma is reddish or orange, and then at the very end of it, in the, at the base of it, it's kind of yellowish. Now, Parker doesn't want the yellow bits on there, so he, he asked the growers to pinch that off. And whereas there are other growers that aren't as particular about that. And so when we look at the research done on medicinal aspects of saffron, there needs to be cons some consistency um, it, with regard to the way that uh, product that they're testing is produced. And I'm not sure that's there yet, which is why we end up with a lot of variability uh, in the results in terms of how effective it is. So hopefully over time, the US industry will be more standardized so that we can start addressing that better. Awesome. So Parker, can you just kind of follow up with what Margaret was saying with kind of your standards or your, your grade of what you want to take um, or accept um, into and what happens to, to the product that's not that you don't accept? Like what, what happens to it? Does it just go into a waste system or is it, do, do, do we have a new market for that, for that waste or is it, can you just follow up on that? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there actually. I, I, I agree with Margaret. I think uh, quality standards should be priority number one. Quality and food safety standards should be priority number one as we're building this U.S. market. Um, you know, when I was first visiting farms 2017, 2018, going all, driving all over Vermont, there was some saffron that had leaves in it and a little bit of dog hair. And obviously every year things get better and better. And I think we, we have a partnership agreement that is very clear on the process we find yields the best, the best output, the best results. Um, everyone does it a little different. I think this is kind of a secret sauce is how you, you grow it and then how you go about drying it and curing it. I'm curious to hear Jonathan's POV. Uh, you know, I love what he's doing in Wisconsin. Um, we, we are inspired by the colder growing regions in like Northern Italy. Um, and traditionally that was dried over a wood fire. So we try to finish the drying process with a little bit of that wood fire. Um, we kind of like it uh, and the, the radiance it brings out. Um, but th again, this is kind of a secret sauce. People have ovens, sun dried, dehydrators, fire. It depends where in the world you're doing it and who you talk to. It's, it's quite fascinating, I think. So one, just, I wanted to mention one other thing. Um, we've spent a fair amount of time in our workshops talking to growers about how to dry their saffron. And it's, um, it's not as cut and dried as you might think. And there have been instances where people have not, you know, you think, you say to somebody, well, you just dry it until it's dry, the stigma. Just keep drying it until it's dry. And the first year that we started working with growers, they would say, okay, it's dry. And they would show us this kind of limp stigma that clearly wasn't dry. It was dry-ish. And it's critical that the stigmas are dry because when they go into the jar, if they are not dry enough, they will mold. And there have been people that have produced saffron and it just, it's in those particular cases, 
rare, but they, they do occur where they haven't been dried enough. And then that, that does need to be destroyed. But um, I think that's why it's great to have Parker saying, no, here are the standards that I have. It must be dried at this. You have a temperature, I think, that you expect them to dry it at, yes? We do, Margaret, but we have to, we have to allow some flexibility around that temperature because of, because of what you described. It, um, there are so many variables. If they're picking on a, on a wet, rainy day, versus a very sunny day, we may dry it a little bit differently. So we have some flexibility and just an agreement about that exact temperature. Um, I will, I also, Evan, just wanted to answer your question about the dregs or the, the leftover. Um, so we, we're only buying from farms that uh, we, we feel have excellent saffron adhere to these standards. There's always some leftover saffron because when we, when we jar it, we want full threads and kind of beautiful, complete threads for the consumer. But there's always gonna be some threads that break and are at the bottom of the jar. We're, I think that's an interesting area to explore. We, we looked at a saffron sea salt that included some of those smaller, smaller threads. So it's, it's like a, a white sea salt with the red threads in and people loved it. I liked it too, but we found over time the shelf stability wasn't great. So we continue to tinker with that. We're also looking at a candle, um, uh, so an infused saffron candle. Um, and in general, I think this idea of saffron waste, you know, you have the petals, you have the stamens, and then maybe you have some of the actual stigma. There's a lot of people trying to figure out, can you die with this? Can you put it in something else? Can you make a tea with it? And I think that increases the, the, the total kind of income per flower, which is what farmers want. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of investment in that harvesting uh, from what we learned from Jonathan last week. And Jonathan, maybe you can make a comment that um, along the lines that, that Parker's uh, going down here, but it seemed like, yeah, we're, there's a lot of um, labor and effort, a lot of work going into getting that little thread and you've got this other um, part, flower parts that are, are just sitting there. So any, any comments along those lines that Parker just mentioned? Yeah, I, I, you know, he's talking about the different elements and I think of like sometimes when it's snowing and you're harvesting. So we tried, I think in 2017 was when we had our first harvest on a small scale and we had um, like a Nesco dehydrator and we were trying to get a certain temperature. We weighed it when it was the wet weight, that's after it was harvested and then weighing it after it was dried, try to get this consistency. And then we tried a few batch, you know, after subsequent years, and it was never consistent, like a certain amount of time or temperature at all. It was situational depending on the season, the weather, um, but just in general. So I think you have to have a feel for it um, and make sure you're closely monitoring. Um, and I think for us, we, we, we tried all the other things like trying to separate the stamens and the petals, dry those, you know, because I think some of the initial workshops in Vermont um, that, the uh, Arash and uh, Margaret reference, you know, there is potential to use other parts of it. And if, as a small scale producer, I want to increase the value added products that I have. And if it means I'm something that I'm growing that's quality and I'm taking a lot of time into producing it, I want to maximize that. I don't like wasting things. I, I came from Ukraine as a young child and I don't like wasting anything, especially food. Um, you know, maybe the, and the flower just has some beauty to it. And um, so aromatic, uh, the nature of the aromatic nature of it is also really um, 
just nice. So I, I open up a jar, like I have here a jar from our 2017 batch. And I just love that aroma and just the smell and how it still, you know, carries and lingers after it ages some. So I certainly, yeah, I think what Parker is doing, it's, it's, I, I want to explore more of other dry options. Um, but like you said, it, it varies from season to season. Awesome. So there's a lot of, a lot of factors that go into producing such a quality product. And I'm just wondering, Arash and Margaret, can you kind of touch base? Like, have you guys done research around how much, um, how much income is being made and revenue is being made off of this product? So we do a survey every year among uh, saffron growers, mostly in North America. That's sort of what we're focusing on. And um, it's certainly not complete at this point, but um, every year the number of growers that are producing more saffron is increasing. So for example, um, in oh, 2017, most growers were growing less than um, 28 grams. And so you gotta realize that growers, if they're lucky, they're selling it for oh, 30 to $50 a gram. And so um, in the last year, in 2019, um, there were maybe, at almost 20% of the people that replied. So out of, I think we had about 125, 150 people replying. So almost 20% of them were producing um, between 29 grams and 100 grams. And so that was just showing an, an, an increase over time that more and more people are growing more, which makes sense because the whole way saffron, you, you planted the first year, you don't get a whole lot of flowers, you only start getting a better yield in um, years two and three. And so we are seeing that increase over time. Um, just one other thing uh, we tried to get information on was where are people selling it? And that's changing every year too. And I think the pandemic has had a big impact on that. So for example, in 2018, um, Oh, most people were selling from their home farm stands. This past year in 2019, which sort of includes 20 as well, um, like 31% were selling it online. And so those kinds of things are changing. Some of that's because people have websites now. And so they're promoting it on their website so that they can sell it um, uh, by mailing it in through mail order. And so those things are evolving all the time. And I know that there are growers, not just in Vermont, but throughout the US who want to expand, oh, refine how they, how they do it. There aren't very many Parker Shoreys out there and he really focuses on Vermont. So most of these other growers need to figure out their own way of, of um, marketing it. There are a few that are using saffron as an agritourism link. So they, they might have an Airbnb and they get the people to come during the harvest season so that they can help harvest <laughs> it and dry it. And so, so there's lots of different avenues that people are trying. So Jonathan, through your uh, Camel Co-op, is that more just direct marketing? To, are you going through the co-op to the, um, to the end user or are you going directly 
through to the user? Yeah, so, so a, con a combination of both right now, um, since we're uh, the founders and one of the member owners of the co-op, we're just going right to the consumer. Um, but as we move forward, we're going to expand. Some will be at our stand, some uh, mailing, you know, online order, uh, focusing on the Wisconsin area. And I think part of it is you talked about the agritourism. It's such a beautiful sight to see, you know, in October, November when they're blooming. We, we, we want to offer like workshops for people. So they come and get their own corms. They, they see us plant it and they take theirs home and plant it. And then they see how many threads they get. So it's part of the experience of just celebrating it. Cause like, as I think, you know, I mentioned previously, you know, when your other vegetables are kind of on their end of life there for the season, saffron is at, uh, at its peak and it just like adds some optimism for the next season. So I love that aspect of it and we will continue growing saffron and expand. Ahead, Parker. I would just really, I really agree with what Jonathan said. The, the saffron blooms, or the, the purple, the yellow, the red, at the same time you're getting fall foliage and the aroma, it is like something to behold. Um, so really, I, I'm, I think that agrotourism when COVID has passed is a really interesting idea. Um, we also shipped some corms out to people and they were able to see some blooms. It's a little bit of a roll of the dice that first year you get maybe one flower out of three quorums um but people like a surprise in the dreary, dreary fall weather um another thing that's worth mentioning and maybe arash can talk about it um in vermont uh we have a fair amount of solar arrays now because we're trying to be more energy efficient as time goes on and um one of the issues is there are some regulations or restrictions with regard to building uh, solar arrays that they cannot be built on agricultural land. And the reason is because the legislature or the government doesn't believe they're concerned about losing uh, viable agricultural land. And so we were, we partnered with a uh, solar company to uh, look at saffron as a potential crop that could be grown in association with uh, conventional, you know, uh, rec solar arrays. And Arash, maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about um, what some of your results were. Oh, actually, we harvested great results from that research side. And one thing that I want to mention is like when I had a conversation with the uh, guy from that solar array farm, you know, the manager of that electricity generation site, he said, we want to show that we have heart. We, we are green. We, we want to use the land, not just for industrial uh, purposes. We want to grow them because we have land there. So don't forget, saffron is a low maintenance crop and they want to produce something. At the same time, they want to have a product, have a crop that doesn't need that much laborers and workers all the time to go there and reduce the potential of making damage on the panels and solar cells. So we started doing planting saffron in those sites because of these reasons. And the yield was awesome in one of one of the treatments that we had in the raised beds in those on, uh, farms, we harvested around 17 pounds of saffron 
per acre, when we convert the data, is like 17 tons of saffron per acre. You're talking about 119K dollars gross revenue. This is like huge money. And it shows that, it confirms that how the data that we harvested so far or collected are great. Well, the, the other thing from an environmental standpoint, commonly um, in these solar arrays, um, they get weeds growing and they don't like the weeds growing. So they spray herbicides to keep those weeds down. And so if it was possible instead to be growing a crop, a, especially a high value crop that doesn't take a whole lot of time, then maybe these solar array owners would be less inclined to use a herbicide and more inclined to try and develop the land as an agricultural benefit. So that's a win-win uh, uh, opportunity. Uh, yeah, I think we're seeing, yeah, we're at, uh, agree, Margaret. I think we're seeing that um, movement, even, even from a groundwater quality standpoint, this yeah. permaculture, uh, keeping permanent cover, on the ground, uh, especially when you have a, I mean, the solar array, that's a great, it seems like a perfect fit. So Arash, these were in a, these were in um, raised beds, not planted directly into the ground or was there kind of, with your research, was it kind of a little of both and seeing how things perform? Yeah, a little of both. Okay. Actually, we, you, we compared it in ground and raised beds because saffron is originally from arid and semi-arid area and having them in the raised bed makes it better drainage system you know, make it soil moisture content like more appropriate for them. So that was the reason we tested that and we hope that we publish the results very soon. Um, so you asked before, so how much, are, how much are growers really making from saffron? And um, again, we have encouraged growers from the very beginning to start small and they heeded our warnings or our advice. And so by design, the industry has been relatively small area-wise, but just based on our last survey, about 18% of the people that replied were making, this is gross now, $2,000 to $5,000. 5% um, of them were making 10,000 to 50,000. Um, so it's showing a couple of things that the industry, the, the revenue that people are generating is increasing every year as both the amount of area that is being uh, cultivated is in saffron is increasing, but also more people are growing it and it gets older. And so it's um, getting more, there's just more harvest for that, for that original um, um, field uh, establishment. And so, um, we have never necessarily promoted saffron as a single crop for a grower. We have always focused on how can we support small diversified farmers to increase their revenue potential. That's not to say there aren't some growers who have said, I really want to focus on saffron alone. There are some, some growers in Vermont. They just want to grow saffron and that's it. There's some out in California. That's all they do. 
They don't grow a bunch of vegetables and all these other things. But in general, most of the people that are growing saffron are doing it as part of a total farm program. And Jonathan, I believe that's kind of how it fits in, like you mentioned earlier, you know, it's ready to harvest when a lot of your other work is wrapping up for the year here in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we wanted to be as a complementary uh, crop towards the end of the season. Uh, because, you know, the, the rest of the, the fields are, you know, you might start getting some of the frost and then you see like the eminent winter approaching and it's like the last kind of hurrah and just kind of optimism. So maybe, you know, it's a, it's a nice distraction from all the other work to do yet to kind of get ready for the winter. Um, but yeah, we wanted it as a complimentary. Um, so people come out to the farm and you know, support us, but then, you know, maybe also buy some of those other uh, products and food that we have, you know, at, on the farm when maybe they wouldn't be as inclined to come out because it's getting colder, so. Uh, one other thing that's worth noting, we're getting ready to hold a saffron workshop uh, in an online version this year. Uh, one session is gonna be on March 11th and another one is on March 18th. And um, if they go to the North American um, Center for Saffron Research and Development, they will find the link to register. Yeah, I think that's a great opportunity for you know podcast listeners, our listeners, and then we will share that uh, through our website as well. So if uh, Margaret and Arash can get that information to us here in Wisconsin, we will definitely put that on our website and make those connections with the growers. Anything else, Evan, before we wrap up? No, I think that's good. I think this has been a really quick and good discussion and um, just a nice segue from our from our original discussion on it. And I've learned a lot again. Um, I learned a lot the first time. So I'm, I'm really thankful that we were able to connect with you guys today um, just to further our discussion on Saffron. And I don't know that we're really through with this group yet as a podcast. Uh, we'd really like to spend maybe another session on just production. Uh, last time we kind of took yeah. that overview, but really maybe and then today, more marketing, what's the uh, opportunity for a small farm, uh, how it fits in with the system. But if we can invite you all back in a few weeks, I think we'll try to uh, address production and really dive into, you know, how do we make this stuff grow, uh, especially from a, uh, with Jonathan here in Wisconsin. I think that's our goal, but uh, the, the climate's very similar in Vermont. We really appreciate uh, everyone joining and Parker, especially with that marketing side. And, and we'll invite you back to Parker as far as uh, uh, that, that uh, avenue to try to distribute this, this uh, growing crop. Thank you very much. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.